I'm going to read for us the psalm in its entirety first. So Psalm 103, if you've gotten your way there, however you've done that, um, let's let our eyes fall on this together. This is a psalm of David, Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, in all that is, in with, is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. Who forgives all your iniquity? Who heals all your diseases? Who redeems your life from the pit? Who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy? Who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like eagles? The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known His way to Moses, His acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will He keep His anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love towards those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear Him. For He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like the flower of the field, for the wind passes over it and it's gone. Its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him and His righteousness to children's children. To those who keep His covenant, remember to do His commandments. The Lord has established His throne in the heavens, and His kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you His angels, you mighty ones who do His Word, obeying the voice of His Word. Bless the Lord, all His hosts, His ministers who do His will. Bless the Lord all His works in all places of His dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Let's pray. O God, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You for the richness of it and the depth of it. I thank You for a man like David. A man who had great strengths, who had great accomplishments, who had big weaknesses and big falls. And yet he was known as a man after Your own heart. And Lord, he gave us this great psalm. And You gave it to us through him. And so God, I pray now I pray that You would chase us down with Your relentless love right here today. I pray that not a person in my hearing, if it is by Your will and by Your Spirit, I pray that no one here will leave not enamored with the grace of God. Let it be felt by us. Let us be fed by it. Do Your work now, God. We trust in You. Amen.
Psalm 103, a very pretty psalm, a beautiful psalm. Some have even called it an ode because it is so high in its language. Let me ask you this. Have you ever heard of the name Barak? Ever heard that name? Barak? I bet you have. I would hope that you have. Otherwise, you've lived underneath a rock. No pun intended. It is derived... Is it derived? This is a question for you. It's a quiz question. Is it a Hebrew name, a Greek name, or an Arabic name? The name Barak. If you answered yes, you're right. It is a Hebrew name, a Greek name, and an Arabic name. But since Hebrew language is about a thousand years older than the Greek language and another thousand years older than the Arabic language, then it principally is or derived from a Hebrew word. And it does. It derives from the Hebrew, or the Hebrew root, catch this, Barak. That's right. Barak derives from Barak. It means to praise or to bless or to kneel, or to be impressed by. Now, why does that matter to us? Because it's repeated about seven times in this psalm this morning, in the, the phrase or the, the, the word baraki, which in Hebrew means you bless, you praise. It's an exhortation, a strong urging. And we see it together here in verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. If we can go back one, I want you to see our takeaway for this morning. I am praying that we will leave reminded of the grace of God and led to authentically praise Him. Reminded of the grace of God and led to authentically praise Him. Alright, back to verse 1. This is an exhortation. That is, David is emphatically urging. But here's what's interesting. Look at who David is urging. He writes, Bless the Lord, O my soul. David is emphatically urging who? David. That's odd. David is preaching to his soul. Let me say that again. David is preaching to his soul. Now, David was not a priest. David was not a preacher, but David found a place in his life to preach to his soul. Did you know that every believer is called to preach? Every believer is called to be a preacher. Not every believer is called to be a preacher over or to the whole church, but every believer is called to be a preacher at least to him or herself. If you don't have a mental category for preaching to your soul, which maybe you don't yet, I'm praying you'll see this morning it's a biblical category that needs to be there. It's used in the Scriptures and it's a healthy part of the Christian life. To stand and look at the Word of God, 
to stand over the congregation of your soul, to examine the congregation of your soul, and then preach to it. I mean, lay into it. I mean, you don't even have to tell any jokes when you're preaching to your soul. You don't have to worry about it showing up next week. It's not going anywhere, right? It is there. Attendance is required. Right? You can preach to it at any time. And David, right now, we get the joy of listening in as David opens up his soul and he gives it a sermon. So that's what's happening. Let's look at the content of the sermon. He says, bless the Lord or praise the Lord. Some of you are going to have bless, some are going to have praise. And all that sin is within me. And then he goes and he says, soul, praise the Lord and do not forget His benefits. This is helpful on a number of levels. Notice that David does not wait till when he feels ready to praise God. We often view praising God as something like that. It should, it's only appropriate when certain feelings are already there and it comes out of a passive, reactive mode. David doesn't see that for his own soul. He's telling his own soul right now, Hey soul, you're not praising God. Hey soul, you praise God. And don't forget His benefits. That's helpful. We don't need certain feelings to praise God. David says to his soul, there is always a time to praise God. Now I recognize that's an easy statement. As we sit in an air-conditioned, very nice facility with incredibly cushioned seats, But that same word translates all the way across the globe. And the Bible says, and this is hard for us to swallow, but it's biblical, that for a mom and a dad who this week watched as their kids starved in front of them because they couldn't go back home in Iraq because they had been run away. And they watch their kids die this week. And they hold the name of Jesus. Do you realize the Bible says there's a place for praise in their soul? That's what David is talking about. It is a deep sense of I can praise God at any time for anything no matter what. And you're going to see what is incredible about this psalm is nothing in it is dependent upon any circumstance of your life. You are not a slave to your circumstance. I don't care what the TV preacher tells you. You are not a slave to your circumstance. God is sovereign over all. That wasn't in there. That's going to hurt the time. We're going to keep moving. All right. But there's another interesting thing here. If it's in the Bible, then who's the ultimate author of the Bible? That's not a trick question. You know we believe this deeply. Like not just a little bit, but like real deep, right? We believe that God is the author of the Bible, right? So if God is authoring David to author, hey, you need a praise, then isn't God calling on praise for God? 
God is saying, you should praise me. He's commanding somebody be impressed by him. Now that's awkward, especially in a Western context, because in a Western context that we live in, we don't do that. Even arrogant athletes know not to do that. They, they know when interviewed about their great game to at least give a little bit of deference, at least most of them, I'm guessing, to their teammates, right? Oh, I gotta, you know, I gotta thank my teammates, right? But God, He's not doing that. Why does an athlete, why would it be wrong for an athlete to ask for this? Because an athlete's always going to be open to the charge if you couldn't have done this without your teammates, right? <laughs> God is never open to that charge. There is nobody to whom, for whom they can say, God could not have been who He is without me. God is who He is because God is who He is. And so God says, look at me, swallow deep, and praise. So it's good for us to praise God. It's good for us and God deserves it. And David preaches a two-point message to his soul. He wasn't an advanced preacher, so he only got two points. Um, and that is this. Soul, praise God. And soul, forget not His benefits. When we see benefits there, you can think grace. Soul, do not forget the grace of God, soul. God has been gracious to you, soul, and be reminded of that, soul. You know, in Christianity, there is one benefactor, God. And everybody else is a beneficiary. And it's not like we believe we're beneficiaries in the sense that, you know, we earn quite a bit uh, ourselves, but God just got us over the hump. No, that's false Christianity. In, in authentic biblical Christianity, we believe we're beneficiaries in the full sense. That is, we got nothing to take credit for, and it's all because of God. And you know what? In a certain sense, that really levels the playing field, doesn't it? There's nobody in Christianity who's taken Christianity for what it is who can in any way stand above another one and say, now I have something to boast for. We have nothing to boast for because nothing is to our credit. An amazing thing. David says he's got a two-point sermon for his soul. Soul, praise God. And soul, do not forget His grace. And the rest of this psalm is an example of David praising God. It is beautiful. Here's David's logic. He says, I'm going to overwhelm my soul, flood my soul with so many thoughts of how great God is that my soul stands no other option but to stand up and say, praise God. Yeah, it looks rough right now. Praise God. And then we're going to walk through this together. There's going to be five of them. The first one, verse 3, Who forgives all your iniquity? God forgives all your sin. God forgives all of your sin. 
Now you may, you may say, if you've been around here much, you may say, man, it feels like you all talk about sin a lot. Um, well, we do. <laughs> Uh, that's because we take the Bible very seriously. We think it should be the content of everything that we do. And guess what? The Bible talks about a lot. Sin. Uh, and David, the first thing off of his lips, when he thinks about God, he says, He's forgiven all of my iniquity. He's telling to his soul, He forgave all of your iniquity, soul. The Bible says... That God has forgiven all of our sin. Now when you stop for a second and think about all the devastation, pain, and war, and struggle, and brokenness of sin that has been ravaged across the Scriptures and what it's caused, it's an unbelievably amazing thing to hear the Scriptures declare God forgives it all. As you read Psalm 103, it might sound a bit familiar to you. Um, maybe not. Uh, I bet it did to Brother Richard because a couple weeks ago he preached out of Exodus 34. And Exodus 34 is the meat of what's going on in Psalm 103. You remember there when Moses asked, this is right after the golden calf, and Moses has pleaded for the people that God not wipe them out because God was ready to wipe them out. And he pleads for them successfully. And then he says, God, I want to see your glory. And God says, I'll show you my backside. And then God, this is God, he's standing there. And God says this about God. And by the way, anytime you get God speaking about God, it's a good thing to take it real serious. In Exodus 34, verse 6 through 7, we get this. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord. A God merciful and gracious, He's slow to anger and He's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He's keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin. But who will by no means clear the guilty? God describes Himself principally as merciful and gracious and forgiving sin. But then He also adds by no means clearing the guilty. Now, how can that be? Stop and think about it for a second. How can God forgive sin and simultaneously be the same one who does not clear the guilty? Just take David as an example. We know that in one single incident in David's life, the incident with Bathsheba, in one incident, he broke at least nine out of the Ten Commandments. The only one maybe he kept was keeping the Sabbath. Maybe. He broke all nine in that incident. How is it that God could forgive David's sin, but by no means clear the guilty? David was certainly guilty. Here's how. It's unbelievable. God's only Son, our sinless Savior Jesus, bore David's sin on the cross, whereby God rained down the wrath of heaven. Jesus agonized in the garden over the wrath of God. He was tormented on a cross. And unbeknownst to any bystanders, He endured the full fury of heaven over David's sin on the cross. God did not clear the guilty. He became the guilty. 
And in so doing, He forgave all of David's sins. And the good news is, what He did for David, He has made open to every one of us. He does not clear our guilt. He becomes our guilt. And in so doing, He forgives our sin. Do you really believe that God forgives all of your sin? Just ask that question. Do you really believe that? Listen to some of this language in Psalm 103, 8-12. The Lord is merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will He keep His anger forever. Verse 10. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love towards those that fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far He removes our transgressions from us. As far as the east is from the west, that's how far God removes our sin from us. Do you believe that? Have you really experienced that type of forgiveness? Stop for a second. Get in your mind those sins that haunt you. You know which ones. These are the ones that Satan loves to dredge up. You got them? Just think of them. I mean, they horrify you. It scares you to know that anybody else knows about them. Some of them, maybe nobody else does. You got it. I want you to see it. Do you honestly believe that God has fully forgiven you those sins? Have you really pictured those as nailed to the cross of Christ and the wrath of God already poured out upon them. Brothers and sisters, those sins have been forgiven. Jesus has already paid for those. God has forgiven you of all of your sins. Why? Why? Because as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His love, His steadfast love for you. Now, the universe, from what I can gather, is about 46 billion miles to the end of the universe from the, the surface of the earth. 46, sorry, 46 billion light years. Okay, not miles, light years. A light year is somewhere around 6 trillion miles. Now, I was just interested enough to wonder how many times would you have to lap the earth to pull off that distance. The earth is 24,000 miles if you go around it. According to my math, now this is a rounded number, but I don't think it's going to cause anybody indigestion. Um... I'm thinking, according to the math, it's 200. You'd have to lap the earth to get the same distances from the ends of earth to the end of the heavens. You would have to lap the earth 250 quintillion times. Or another way to put it, 
according to the math, is 250 billion billion times. So I started picturing myself. Somehow, I walked 24,000 miles around. Got through with lap one. Can you imagine the discouragement of looking up at the scoreboard and it's saying one of 250 times 10 to the 19th, right? But if you're going to outrun the love of God, you've got to run that far. Guess what? You can't. I hope that's not news to you. You can't run that far. Praise God, you cannot outrun the love of God. You can't do it. Once He sets His sight on you, you are finished. He will chase you down with His love. You cannot outrun the love of God. And that's why the cross was accomplished. That's why your sin is forgiven. And you say, well, why does He love me that much? Because He is God. Also, do not forget the grace of God. He forgives all of your sin. And He heals all your diseases. In the verse 3, David describes God as the one who heals all your diseases. <laughs> Some of us are plagued with disease. You hear this and you're immediately thankful for the abundant grace of God that there's coming a day when every bit of chronic pain and chronic fatigue and neurological disorder and cancer and, and mental dementia, it'll be totally and completely gone. Praise God! That day is coming for the children of God. But it gets deeper than us. Every one of us is plagued with a terminal disease. Listen, just stop for a second. I want you to swallow that. I'm not running past that with preacher tongue. Every one of us is plagued with a terminal disease. Every single one of us in this room. It's called sin. I'm not sure if you saw the recent story of James Brady, who was the press secretary for President Reagan, who was gunned down in the assassination attempt on Reagan's life in 1981, that he recently died. And one of the interesting things is, is the coroner's report has come back. They have to list a cause of death. And they listed the cause of death as homicide. Now this event happened 33 years ago. So legally, there's a very interesting decision to be made. Here's an incident that happened 33 years ago. There is no doubt, medically speaking, that it was the bullet to the brain that paralyzed him and ultimately led to the death of James Brady. And so now the, the, the district attorney in Virginia is going to have to make the decision on whether or not to press charges on John Hinckley Jr. You know, if there was another spot on the coroner's report called ultimate cause of death, do you realize every single human being who's ever died? Every single human being, even Christ, would have written on the coroner's report, ultimate cause of death, sin. Every one of us will die because of sin unless the Lord returns first. 
Every one of us is going to die because of sin. So you walk in tomorrow and you get a diagnosis that says, you're going to die. You knew that. <laughs> right? I mean, unless Jesus returns, you're going to die. That's just the way it is. I hope that's not news to you. Unless Jesus returns first, you're going to die. Why? Because of sin. The Bible says that when sin entered the picture, so also did death. But there is coming a day where Jesus will heal us of all of our disease, including the disease of sin. So He forgives all of our sin. But He goes even further than that. He heals our bodies and soul so that we no longer feel the effects of sin. As the songwriter puts it, we are saved to sin no more. He forgives all of our sins. He heals all of our disease. So, do not forget the grace of God. And He redeems your life from the pit. I want you to see that God adopts us as His children. Look at verse 4. It says, Who redeems your life from the pit? So God forgives us. He, so now you've got a person who's forgiven. They used to be an enemy of God, now they're forgiven. He, he then heals us. But He goes even further. As if He hasn't been gracious enough. He goes even further and He redeems us. He purchases us. Right? He, he cashes us in. Cashes in for us. Look at verse 13 and 14. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear Him. For He knows our frame. He, rede- he remembers that we are dust. God loves you as a father because He adopted you as His child. Some of you have some really bad ideas of fathers in your mind because your fathers were less than what they should have been. Well, you have a heavenly father who is literally perfect. And guess what? He has adopted you as is. Let me say that again. He's adopted you as is. No return policy. Now imagine for a second that I got a call from President Obama's office and they wanted me to become one of their chief advisors. And that would be crazy. I would have no clue what I was doing. No clue. But let's say I was crazy enough to take him on. I would imagine I would spend all my time thinking, at what point are they going to realize I'm clueless, we've hired a moron, and we need to send him home? I'm going to spend all my time dodging every question I can. I've got no clue. Hey, Tim, what should we do in Iraq? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know, right? I would, oh, I think that's the uh, uh, Department of uh, Defense. They should take that one. Yep, send that over to the uh, Secretary of Defense. Let's go for that one. Yep, yep, yep. I wouldn't have a clue. I would spend all my time scared they're going to find me out. You know, I think that is how many of us react when we think about the idea of adoption as children. We like to think about it, but then we don't let our minds go there very long because we have this s- sneaky suspicion 
that if we end up in the, whole, in the house of the holiness of God, and we're us, at some point, they're going to figure out who we are, and there's going to be trouble, right? It's like me getting on ice skates. At some point, something's going to break, right? It's not going to go well at all. The psalmist understands that. And so here's how he explains the adoption. He makes sure that we know that God knows exactly who we are. And how does he explain that? This is great. God knows you were made from dust. In other words, He created you. It's as if the psalmist is saying, flip yourself over, look on the backside, there's a stamp said, made by God. Right? He knows who He's adopting. But that's the relentless love of God. He still adopted us. He knows you can't skate. But He has a Son who is a perfect, pristine skater. And He looks at you and says, Child, lace up. I have adopted you. God forgives all of our sin by paying for it Himself. He, he heals us of all of our sinfulness. He then adopts us to be part of the royal home. <laughs> Unbelievable. So, do not forget the grace of God. And it keeps going. Verse 4. Who crowned you with steadfast love and mercy. Verse 4, He who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. He crowns us, or He clothes us with what? What does He clothe us? Steadfast love and mercy. Now the ESV has steadfast love there. The actual Hebrew word is the Hebrew word hesed. And it gives translators a fit. The I think the New American Standard, KJV and NKJV, all have loving kindness there. It's pretty good. But notice, steadfast love or loving kindness, those aren't words we use a whole lot, right? Why? It's the best thing a translator can do. It's their best option. They're just looking for something that actually fits the weight of this word. The NIV, honestly, I, I, I think they're bad here. Uh, they translate it just simply love. And it's that, but it's a whole lot more. It's, it's covenant, deep, unrelenting love. The English word love is just too soft for this. Listen to verses 15-17 through 17 out of this psalm. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. And the wind passes over it and it's gone. And his place knows no more. We're just so temporal. That's what, that's what this psalmist writes here. You're just, we're just so temporal. 17. But the steadfast love of the Lord, it's from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him. Let me give you the exact translation there. It is Hesed Yahweh from everlasting to everlasting. The, the first word of the sentence, the author fronts it 
with Hesed. That is, steadfast love Yahweh from everlasting to everlasting. Now stop and think about it. It's unreal. We spend so much of our time and energy vying for the love of other human beings. And the psalmist says, even if a human being loves you and loves you deeply, it, there's an end date. It can only last so long. They can only last so long. But the steadfast love of God will never, ever end. Do you remember Jesus hours before He gets on the cross? is nailed on the cross. Do you remember in John 17, He's praying, and this is what He prays. I do not ask for these only. He's talking about His disciples here in John 17. But for all those who will believe in Me through their word. That's us. You could describe us in that sentence right there. That phrase right there. We are all those who believe in God because of His word. Or the word of the, the uh, disciples. That they may be perfectly one. So that the world may know that You sent Me and love them even as you loved me. I'm going to read that again. It's one of those, you've heard it, but just stop for a second and try to grasp that. That they may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Jesus prays that we would know that God sent Him that we may know that God the Father loves us even as God the Father loved the Son. Folks, that is barely comprehensible. I know how I love my Son. I have never, ever loved like that. Nothing comes close. And I am evil. And so is He. I can't comprehend the love that God the Father has for His Son. And hear the Word of God this morning. He has loved you exactly the same. <laughs> and what does the psalmist say? That steadfast love, that Hesed love, what does He do with it? He clothes you in it. <laughs> so you've been forgiven. You've been healed. I mean, just think about it. You're way off. Way out in the outskirts of the kingdom of God. You're an enemy of God. God comes. I mean, you don't make a step towards Him. He comes all the way to you and He says, it's forgiven. I'm not going to wipe you out. Man, He would have been so gracious to leave you there. Just the fact that He's not going to wipe you out. Oh my word. And then He says, and also what I'm going to do is, I'm going to heal you so you'll stop being the messed up person you are. <laughs> what? And then He says, and one other thing, I want you to no longer live out there. I want you to live in my home. You're going to be one of my children. I'm going to love you like I love my son. 
You get there, you got these dirty, nasty, ruggy clothes, you got holes in your jeans, your, 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 your shoes have uh, flopping soles on them. You get up to your room, and there's only one outfit in the kingdom of God. Everybody only wears one thing. There's one robe. Everybody in the kingdom of God is clothed. They literally put on every day the love of God. That's what they wear. The love with which He loved His Son, He has put on you. That's your outfit for the rest of your days. Forever. Also, do not forget the grace of God. And who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Verse 5. God satisfies us. I really appreciate the uh, King James Version on this. Uh, or I think the New King James does the same. It reads, Who satisfies your mouth with good things. It's actually probably a better literal translation there, but I also like it because I like food. Right? I can get that. I'm reading it. Who satisfies you with good? Okay, what does that mean? He satisfies me with good. I mean, going over and over, he satisfies me with good. He satisfies my mouth with good. Gotcha. I'm right, I'm right there with you. I know what it means to be satisfied by some food. There's another way to put it. I like to grub. I really like to grub. When I played football, we had a pregame meal. I was on the team. I didn't play. But they let me eat. And I ate just like I was going to play all four quarters. I loved it. Frozen Sam's lasagna, bring it. Parmesan cheese, probably had all the saturated fat in the world, bring it. I love it. I love food. I love that the Word of God says when He gets you in His house, He's going to take you in His house, He's going to put His, his, his clothes on you, and He's going to sit you down at a table, and He's going to say, now you eat. And you'll be satisfied. What? I also like that translation because not because just I like food. I like food too much. I'm still dealing with that. But anyway, it's also because it gives us the picture of the garden. Doesn't it? Remember the picture of the garden? In the Garden of Eden, we get a picture of paradise. And what is paradise? Paradise is man living with God, shamelessly enjoying God's love and being endlessly satisfied. Just let me say it again. Paradise is man shamelessly enjoying God's love and being endlessly satisfied. That, that was the garden. But it went south in a hurry. How? Food. Paradise was literally lost over a piece of fruit. Now I'm convinced it's a tomato. That's why I only eat those things crushed. The better crushed, the better they are. We crush the serpent's head, we crush the tomatoes. I have very little biblical support for that, so I'm not going to preach that. But seriously, just think about that for a second. We lost Eden because of a piece of fruit. Now remember, don't get too excited about yourself. Yeah, come on now, Eve. Come on, Adam. Nowhere like that in the Scriptures because guess what Christian theology teaches us? Adam and Eve were our representatives. Which means they did exactly what we would have done. We would have done the same thing. 
We gave up paradise for a piece of fruit. But we know it is much, much more than that. We gave up paradise for the chance that something outside the kingdom of God would satisfy our hearts. Let me say that again. Please listen. We gave up paradise for the chance that something outside of the kingdom of God would satisfy our hearts. Verse 19. The Lord has established His throne in the heavens and His kingdom rules over all. God is to be praised because He owns everything and nothing outside of His full uh, is outside of His full control and possession. Abraham Kuyper, a 20th century Dutch theologian, famously put it this way, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. The battle in the garden was the battle as to whether or not we believe that God fully satisfies. Hear this. There is nothing that satisfies which God does not own. If it satisfies, then God owns it. In fact, the only way He can ever effectively tempt us is for the evil one to take something outside of the kingdom of God and make it look like something inside the kingdom of God. That's how He tempts us. He makes it look like it's going to be good for us. That's how every temptation you deal with is. Every temptation is you looking at being tempted to go outside the kingdom of God, the boundaries that God has set up, and say, I'll be satisfied there. Can I encourage anyone who's wandering on the outskirts? You're kind of searching the perimeter of the kingdom. Can I beg you, don't go out there? I don't care how satisfying it looks. It will destroy you. I, like many others in this room, everybody in this room, I've tasted of things outside those walls. And they taste good and satisfy none. It's like drinking salt water. The more you drink, the thirstier you become. If you are in Christ, do you realize that you've been freed for the very first time in your existence to eat from the table of God that satisfies? God proclaims to you His adopted, forgiven, healed, deeply loved child, if it is good, I own it, and you can eat as much as you wish. Now just put these together. And here's what you've got. We were once enemies of God and God has completely forgiven our sin. With no help from us and extreme cost to Him. He's healed us of our terminal sickness such that though we may die, we will never ultimately die. He adopted us, rebels, to be His children. 
We went enough to just adopt us to be His slaves. He says, I'm going to love you like my own. He's clothed us in never-ending, steadfast love and mercy. And now He sits us down in the main kingdom hall of the kingdom of God. And He says, My child, eat and enjoy forever the riches of My kingdom. Oh soul, praise God. Oh soul, forget not His benefits. Oh soul, praise God. Do not forget His grace.